Welcome, everybody. Thanks very much uh, for either coming to this debate or staying after uh, the documentary that we have seen. My name is uh, Asun Sinclair, and I used to be a member of the RAFTO Foundation uh, Board of Directors. On behalf of the RAFTO Foundation, the Norwegian Council for Africa, and the Festival for the Human Rights Documentaries, I welcome you all to this debate. For all of you who have seen the documentary, it shows in a very painful and direct way both the causes and the consequences of the combination of climate change and global environmental change and the negative impacts that one thing may have in another and eventually into the livelihoods of people. We have with us today two very interesting men to discuss some of the aspects that were raised in the documentary. In particular, we are going to be talking perhaps more about the role of private sector companies within the oil uh, disasters that we see in the region and the potential responsibilities that they may have to clean up and to prevent those harms. So to my left, we have, you already know him, Nimo Basi. Thank you very much for being here with us. Nimo is the director of the Health of Mother Earth Foundation a very well-known environmental activist, a poet, a very good poet, an architect, I didn't know about that, um, and a human rights defender. He was the human rights laureate uh, of the Rafter Foundation in 2012. We also have with us Daniel Leder. Uh, Daniel is a lawyer from the Lee and Day Lawyers uh, uh, organization. He works for the international department uh, and he is an expert on international human rights, member, for example, of the UK-based overseeing implementation of the OECD guidelines in regards to multinational companies, and he is engaged, and he will explain it all, in a very interesting case against Shell in relationship to violations of human rights of the local communities that we have seen in the film. So I would like to start the debate by having introductions from both our speakers, a conversation between them, and then I would like to hear your views and your questions to the speakers and to one another to have a good and important debate in a theme that is extremely important in Norway today. So we start with you, uh, Nimo. You, you know it all. You were in the film. Tell us a little bit more about the context in Nigeria and tell us uh, more about the role of uh, oil companies in the region and some of the existing debate that is happening now there. Th thank you very much, and thank you all for coming up for this conversation. Um, as you would have seen in the documentary, uh, the impacts of oil and gas extraction is really horrendous in the Niger Delta. And I personally found it very disturbing when uh, the people from Niger Delta, you know, in comparison to other countries, compete to say to show that Niger Delta is the most polluted place in, on planet Earth. Uh, I, I don't think that's an honor that anybody wants, or that kind of distinction that anybody wants. Uh, but the the context of this this horror did not just happen by chance. Oil was found in commercial quantities in Nigeria in 1956. And then the first commercial export was in 1958. So we're talking about um, 59 years of oil extraction. Started with 5,000 barrels a day, but now it's about 2.4, 2.2 to 2.4 million barrels 
officially a day because Nigeria does not really know exactly how many, how much, how many barrels of oil is exported per day because we don't have, um, we don't really, and this has been accepted by both the corporation and the government. The, there's no, we don't have a good measure that can be dependently verified. Hmm. Now, what that measure, that alone tells a big picture, a big story, because if you don't know exactly how much is coming out of the well, you only have a figure about how much is officially exported. You don't know exactly how much is being exported uh, because there's, there's oil theft at industrial scale. I've heard this from the military. I've heard it from government officials. Uh, and what it also means that we don't know exactly how much of this oil goes into the environment. Uh, and what has happened is that over the years, um, because of disregard for laws of the land, uh, regulating the oil sector, and poor maintenance of oil pipelines and facilities. In the, in the early 1990s, the late Ken Sarawiwa spent a lot of energy campaigning for replacement of pipelines, apart from campaigning against pollution of shale in Ogoniland. And I should mention here that his son, who's the narrator in that documentary, mm -hmm. sadly passed away in October 2016, a few months ago, at the age of 48. Uh, and so the, the tragedy of oil extraction and oil pollution and human rights abuses related to, to, to this kind of this activity keeps on building in the region. So as I was saying, the history, uh, the first oil well was drilled in a place called Oloibri, and there's a movie with that title just re released recently, Oloibri, and if you can find it, it's very well done. Uh, but Oloibri is now a metaphor about what happens when oil is structured in your community and then the well runs dry, and you are left high and dry, except that you are left with the pollution. Uh, so we have a situation where the oil companies, as, as stated in a recent report that was carried out by the United Nations Environment Program, they don't keep to Nigeria, they don't obey Nigerian laws, they don't obey international standards, and they don't even keep to their own in-house standards when it comes to oil extraction in Nigeria. So with all, with a mix of this, it's a very explosive situation. You, you're bound to see what you've seen. And it's been, it's been, the, it's been the penchant of oil companies to blame the pollution on third party interferences or sabotage by local people. They, they said this in the 1980s, and they, they, in fact, they used to advertise in British newspapers that the sabotage is causing uh, pollution in the Nigeria, not, not defective pipelines and facilities, until the British Advertisement Agency asked them to show proof before they would carry such adverts, and the advertisement stopped. This was due to campaign from international civil rights organizations. Now, from about 2006, 2006 to 2009, there was actually a spike in third-party interference with pipelines in some places in the Niger Delta. And this was because of total disappointment of the local population <coughs> with government and then with the oil corporations. Uh, so this was like a political action. Uh, and so um, when oil companies claim that the spillages are not caused by their failure, uh, their equipment failure, it's actually just a way of trying to escape uh, responsibility. I'm sure David will speak more about this, uh, <laughs> at least from the specific cases that Shell has admitted that this has been at fault. 
And so as, as, as we saw in the documentary, there is about uh, one oil spill every day, more or less, because the official agency that detects and responds to oil spills, the National Oil Spill Detection, Detection and Response Agency, has said that there are thousands of oil spill locations that have not been remediated, and that in any one year, you have at least 300, 300 oil spills occurring. That's official record. Thank you, Nimo. It's evidently a very complex uh, situation. Daniel, can you please tell us and share with us what is the work that your law firm is doing in relationship to this? Well, it's uh, wonderful to be here uh, in Oslo and uh, a great privilege uh, to hear in, um, uh, Nemo talk about his work. I, I've long been an admirer of what he does and we've been in email contact for many years, but this is a, the first time we've actually met in person, so it's great to be here. Um, I'm uh, an international lawyer and I work in a, in a law firm that does international human rights and environmental cases around the world. And we're about 40 to 50 lawyers in our particular department, although the law firm is bigger. And what we do, what we specialize in, is we take cases where communities have been affected by environmental or human rights disasters, and we bring those cases to London, because often there's very little chance of getting justice locally through the local courts. I'm afraid going through the Nigerian courts is very difficult, as Nemo can confirm. Um, but the same is true of many, many countries around the world, particularly, uh, I'm afraid, in the developing world. And often the perpetrators of these abuses are multinational corporations, who, many of whom sit in London or New York or Paris, some, no doubt, in Oslo. And uh, what we do is we... we bring the complaint against the parent company in London, and we say, this is what has happened in Nigeria. You need to provide redress for this particular community or these individuals who've been impacted. And so uh, the story goes that about uh, six years ago, we were contacted by some Nigerian fishermen who had heard about our work on the BBC World Service, and so I flew out to Nigeria. And they said, look, you must come and see the Bodo community, this community that was referred to in the, in the documentary. And I thought it would be bad. I thought there would be serious pollution. But when I got there, uh, I was put in a boat and I was taken through the creeks. I could not believe my eyes. The devastation was... Uh, something out of a First World War film. I mean, it was just, for as far as you could see, I was going for an hour in this boat, it was oil absolutely everywhere. And this fishing community of 40,000 people was living right next to it. They were living there because of the creek, of the mangrove creeks. That that's, was what they used to fish, they used for their livelihoods. And all you could see was black oil everywhere and dead mangroves everywhere. And so we went back to Shell and the story was that this community has a major pipeline running underneath it called the Trans-Niger Pipeline. 
there are 6,000 kilometers of pipelines underneath the Niger Delta. And many of the infrastructure, much of the infrastructure is in the middle of communities. Manifolds, flow stations, pipelines, uh, oil wells sit right smack in the middle of these communities. And they have not been maintained properly, these pipelines. They've been there since the 50s, as Nemo says. And so the story of this particular community was there had been a rupture in this major trunk line. And the, pipe, the, water, the oil had been left to leak for five weeks on each occasion. They hadn't stopped the pipeline because Shell has difficulty moving around these communities. They are not very popular in Agoniland. I don't think they're very popular anywhere in, in <laughs> the Niger Delta. So, no. But particularly in Agoniland, from the Ken Sarawiwa history, um, they're very unpopular. So they couldn't get into these communities, but they kept on pumping their oil because they get out, I think it's about 15 million pounds worth of oil or $30 million worth of oil a day under these, through this pipeline. They kept on pumping, and this community was essentially expendable. In, in their eyes, because the result of these spills was they covered the entire creek over the five-week period. And it, the, the particular geography and uh, the way in which the, the tides come in and out of these mangroves is it's terrible if there's an oil spill, because it just goes in and out and spreads all over these creeks and gets encrusted in the mud and kills everything. So the result was that this community of 40,000 people, um, their economy was devastated, their society was devastated, their cultural way of life was devastated. And Shell had not come to clean up. Uh, so we got involved because they were getting nowhere through the Nigerian legal system. And there, a legal battle ensued for the next three years. Uh, and I can tell you more about that in due course, but in short, <coughs> Shell had initially offered the community $4,000 compensation for 40,000 people, which is a few, a few pence per person at most. <laughs> um, they ended up, after four years of litigation, offering, f they, the case eventually settled for $55 million. Uh, and that was by far the largest settlement in the history of any uh, Nigerian oil spill case. I mean, it's for, for most oil companies, compensation they pay to communities is chicken feed. It's, you know, they never pay more than a few hundred thousand a year. Uh, and that money was individually <coughs> distributed to each of the victims directly into bank accounts that were set up. Um, and we are still fighting for the cleanup of the Bodo Creek. The Dutch government has become involved. Shell is dragging its feet because it knows it is a very expensive proposition. It's going to cost them hundreds of millions of dollars to clean up this creek properly. Um, but we are, we have, we are absolutely determined to get this creek cleaned up. And the case is still in London. So if they don't clean up, they can be sanctioned by a British court. And that is what is making them sit up and actually do something in this occasion. Um, 
yeah, I think what I'll finish by saying is we've been approached by other communities. We've been approached by a community called Agali and another community called Bile. We're pursuing those cases too. Uh, those, at the moment, uh, Shell have put in a technical defense on jurisdiction. They've won on first instance. That's being appealed. But I think these cases are really important for, it's really important for activists and lawyers to come together and think creatively, what can we do to hold companies <coughs> to account for what they are doing in these areas where it's very <coughs> difficult to get justice? Where else can we go? Which other courts can we use? Let's think creatively, let's think laterally. What other mechanisms can we use? Can we go to the UN? Can we use the OECD guidelines? Can we sue in other jurisdictions? Um, I think that's, that's what we do, and I think there's a lot of room for growth of this kind of creative human rights activism and creative lawyering yeah. in the future. Thank can you. Thank you, David. Can I give you yes. another case? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, just, just a back. I mean, what, what the, the victory in Bordeaux is very significant and really, really gave a lot of us and the community people hope that these uh, giants can be held to account. Uh, some years earlier, the courts in Holland, in Netherlands, had also agreed that they would hear the case from four fishermen against uh, Shell, whereas Shell was saying, well, Shell in Netherlands is different from Shell in Nigeria, and the court said, no, we're going to hear this case. But in 19, there was a situation in 1998, on 28 May 1998, some youths in a part of the Niger Delta called Ilaje had occupied a direct peaceful action, occupied a Chevron platform to to, for, to ask Chevron to negotiate with the elders in the community about pollution, contamination of the freshwater systems, and some other neglect. And rather than negotiate or go to talk with the elders, Chevron used their helicopters to convey Nigerian military to the platform. And they started shooting even before they landed on the platform and killed two young people on the spot injured many and arrested both the dead and the living. Now, this case ended up in the courts in San Francisco, United States. And you could imagine, um, Shell, Chevron, sorry, I'm always talking about, thinking about Shell. Chevron, <laughs> uh, now, Chevron endeavored to show, to try to prove to the court that what Chevron does in Nigeria is different what, from this, the base in the US. But when the records were ordered by the court, by the, uh, plan, the, def uh, the defense, no, the prosecuting lawyers yeah. who were working with the communities, demanded to see Chevron's emails. And they saw very heavy communication at the time of this incident between the US and Nigeria, and also very high traffic of phone calls. So the court said, <coughs> no, we're going to hear this case. And they heard the case. I mean, the, the struggle by co for communities to find justice is extremely difficult. Imagine community people from the villages who had never traveled out of their village. They had to go to a, the courtroom in the United States. They got there for a week before, a month before time. You get used to just being around San Francisco and seeing what the courtroom looks like and where they're going to stand, the kind of hostile questions they're going to have to face. Uh, and to learn also to understand American English, like I'm sure you are struggling to understand my English. <laughs> so this was a bit difficult, but you know, the, the thing is that at the end of the day, when the case was being decided by the jury, 
we had, we had a, a rise in militancy in the Niger Delta. So the story in the press was that young people are having guns, shooting around the Niger Delta, harassing oil, kidnapping oil officials. So without even considering the evidence, the jury decided very quickly that these boys were militants, they were vandals, that they, they were going <coughs> to Chevron, and that Chevron didn't do anything wrong, that the fact that they used their helicopters didn't mean that they were part of the attack on the youths, right. and so the case was just dismissed because of that. Then Chevron went ahead back to the court and said, okay, now we've, we've been exonerated, the villagers should pay us $500,000 as legal expenses. And then the judge said, the fact that they lost the case does not mean that they had, did not have a good case. For us, that was significant. They lost the case, but at least they were challenged all the way up to their backyard. Right. right. We, we are going to discuss the different types of principles available to hold corporations accountable, due diligence, international human rights regimes, and so on. But before we do that, I, there is a key question here. In such a complex situation, Nemo, can we have a clear allocation of responsibilities? Because very often what happens is that nobody is responsible for these complex situations. But in your experience and in your work, is it possible to have a clear division of responsibilities for the cleanup oh. and for preventing uh, the harm? Yes. Well, this I think, yes, it should be very clear and simple to see because uh, although the, in the Nigerian system, all the, corporate, all the companies operate in joint venture with the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation or the government, mm -hmm. and the Nigerian <coughs> government holds the bigger percentage in, the share, in terms of share, shareholding. So one could say, well, they get more money out of this, so they should share responsibility. But it, the fact is that in terms of who operates the joint venture, it's international oil companies who are operating. And to me, because they're operating, they should, they should answer for both the responsibility for maintaining the equipment, ensuring that there are no spills and responding to the spills, because they're the ones who call the shots. And everything, is being, everything related to the operations is being paid for from the system, including the food they eat and the toothpick they use and the water they drink. Right. So Daniel, tell us a little bit more, explain uh, to all of us, what are the different types of system of corporate responsibility available to use in a situation like this? Just. Well, um, if, if you are a Nigerian community that is suffering from terrible pollution and you want to get the oil cleaned up, you want compensation so the community can get back on its feet, um, you essentially really have three choices. The first choice is you sue in Nigeria. Hmm. The problem with that is the Nigerian courts, I'm afraid, are incredibly inefficient. Uh, and I say that with the greatest respect to the Nigerian judiciary. There are many good judges and many good lawyers, but the system as, its whole, as a whole is what we in, in England call Dickensian. You know, it's, uh, it's reminiscent of um, Charles Dickens and uh, the Victorian period and uh, the book Bleak House, where a case takes about 60 years to work its way through the system. Uh, and I'm afraid uh, we've, we've been doing a lot of work on this recently. Cases take 
15, 20, 25, there was a recent case that took 34 years in the Nigerian system to work its way through to the Supreme Court. And the oil majors appeal and they appeal and they appeal. And in the end, very little is awarded by the courts and it generally gets divided up between the lawyers and the chiefs. Um, the victims get very little. So that's choice number one. Choice number two is you can choose various what's called soft law mechanisms. So something like the OECD guidelines on multinational enterprises. And everyone, every OECD country has something called a national contact point. And every country is meant to respect and observe the OECD guidelines. And if they haven't been, the company can be taken to the national contact point. I think Norway had one of the most advanced national contact point systems uh, in the world. I think it was truly independent and it was often willing to be critical of companies who were behaving irresponsibly. But most national contact points are, sit in government departments who promote trade and are not impartial. I know in Britain, the national contact point is part, is the civil servants are part of the Department of Trade. They couldn't be less impartial. Uh, you will not get a fair hearing and it will not be dealt with properly. And even if it, you, it is, and there's a criticism of the company, there's no power to award damages, there's no power to force anyone to, the company to change its behavior or do anything. So at the moment, if I was a Nigerian community or if I was from a Nigerian community, um, I would want to sue. I would want to go, look, I want to take my case to London or I want to take my case to The Hague because that's the only thing that really forces these com companies to sit up and pay attention and to really engage. Um, and I think that, to me, is one of the most powerful tools at the moment that is around. Now, I hope in the future the Nigerian legal system will get a lot better. I think it, inevitably it will. <coughs> but we're, we are, I think, one generation, maybe two generations away from... from a more effective legal system in Nigeria. And I hope that the soft law mechanisms will get better. But that's, I've been working on soft law mechanisms for 20 years now, and I'm afraid it's very, very slow. Um, so I, I think what you need to do is you need to think if it's possible to take these cases to courts in Oslo, London, New York, Paris, because that's really where you're going to see companies change their behavior and engage with what's going on. Thank you, Daniel. <coughs> Nemo, you, you mentioned earlier, what other incentives can there be for action to start? Uh, well, first of all, uh, let me respond a bit. When you talk about the Nigerian judiciary being two generations away from getting better, I think that's a very bleak uh, summary, uh, our judgment, our assessment. Um, in 2005, we had a case against Shell on gas flaring in a community. Mm. And that was in a drunk court. The case was filed in July. By November, there was judgment. So that was really quick. And, and the judge declared that gas flaring is illegal. It's against the human rights of the people, and that Shell should stop and show a plan to, to stop the, uh, the, the flaring. Unfortunately, now where you It was you ignored. Right, now there's always an appeal. And this appeal could go on for ages. But so I, I think this is, is, is about what is may not, the system is at fault, but the most, the biggest fault is from the corporations, maybe not the fault, the question is a power play. 
uh, this, this, this is politics. It's power play because the, 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 the corporations have little disregard for the people, for the communities, and for the environment. And they believe they have the government in their pocket. If you read WikiLeaks, one Shell official said where that the government does not know how much they've infiltrated the Nigerian government. This is this on record. Uh, and so they have people everywhere. They can manipulate the system. Uh, so they are manipulating the system yeah. and making the cases to I mean, appealing and using technicalities so that either the plaintiffs die off or at the yeah. end the judgment is neither here nor there. So it's, it's a kind of um, colonial, colonial power play, I think, what's going on. And this is why they respect the cases when it goes to their home countries, when it's in Europe uh, or in North America, because then they, they are very exposed to their shareholders and they have to give account somewhat. That's what makes the difference. Disdain for the people in the field and then respect for their own people at home. So it's, more, it's less about the, the, the legal uh, mechanisms than what they think about where they operate. And this is, this is why some of us are campaigning that there should be a halt to oil extraction. Should leave the oil in the soil, keep the hole in the hole. <laughs> uh, this, uh, this, is, this would be the solution to get corporations to begin to think normally. Because after all, the earth is moving away from. So the incentive is that we should, I mean, it's been, this has been said by even the World Bank, as conservative as they are, by International Energy Agency that unless the world moves away from fossil fuels, we're on track for runaway global warming. So if oil companies are going to think about the future for a moment, they should actually shift away from fossil fuels and, and move into renewable energy or something, have enough resources to invest in something more healthy. Right. But before we get there, we need some sort of transition, even in the, in the film. And, and you were saying that Just why don't we use, instead of doing gas flaring, using the gas to kick off the, the energy. So the, the Daniel, will do, appealing to due diligence in companies, how, how can this be done better? Because that's an important material issue yes. for, for companies. Yes, I mean, w uh, one thing that is a cause of real optimism, uh, and I think there is a lot of energy now uh, talking about this, these issues about corporate responsibility, corporate accountability. People are, are waking up to these issues in ways that they never have before. And one very positive thing that has come out of the United Nations in the last few years is a process by uh, a special representative of the Secretary General called John Ruggie, Professor John Ruggie, who formulated something called the United Nations General Principles on Business and Human Rights. And the great achievement of the Ruggie principles is that he managed to get consensus between government, business, and the human rights community. Right. Um, so there are a set of principles that everyone agrees businesses should, should adhere to. The, the problem we have is while that is an enormous step forward, there is no enforcement mechanism. There's no way of making sure that if those principles are breached, people are compensated or companies are forced to stop their action or clean up their oil or uh, stop whatever environmental harm they're causing. So the next step is 
for, for this movement, as it were, is to think how can we translate these principles into something much more concrete, where we are, um, when a problem arises, it's not just left hanging there and people disagreeing with each other. There are mechanisms for sorting out these problems, for deciding what needs to be done, and for providing redress, remedy, as he calls it, for those who've been harmed. Um, and that's the next big debate. That's what we need to work on for the next 10, 15 years. What, what can we do to improve these various mechanisms locally, internationally, to make sure that there is a meaningful outcome that arises out of a problem, um, as opposed to just disagreement? Right, and, 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 and these are applicable to, to all the issues related to the transformations to sustainable uh, societies. But we want to hear you and your questions. Please, just raise your hand and we will, the important thing is, uh, because we are recording this event, that uh, you get the microphone and you say your name. So we have a gentleman here. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Daniel, and thank you very much, uh, Nimo. Wadi Chimenem. I come from the Niger Delta region, Port Harcourt precisely. And uh, it is really very interesting to hear you talk about this, especially having seen some of those things firsthand and uh, the solutions you're trying to prefer for this. But I have a bit of reservation with extraterritorial litigation as a solution to uh, the problem in the Niger Delta. Mm. Recently, I think that's in the Kilbell case, the uh, Supreme Court of the U.S. just said that uh, the U.S., the uh, Alien Tort Claim Act, that allows for litigation in places like the U.S. a violation of laws of nation, does not intend to make the U.S. a venue for uh, violations that happen extraterritorially. So I think this also shows a gloom uh, future in terms of extraterritorial litigation more so in countries like the UK, which is predominantly a common law system, where these corporations are vested with uh, legal personalities in their uh, home states, different from uh, the uh, personality which they have in the state where they operate. Mm. In law, it is very much clear that these are two different personalities, and it is very, very difficult to knit the act of uh, the parent company uh, as opposed to uh, that of the uh, host company in some other place. And now, my problem is this. Is it not the fact that we're actually looking for municipal accountability for something which, uh, which uh, I would say uh, is transnational in nature? Because if we look at the uh, report by, I think that was the committee of experts, that was the committee, that, the commission that was uh, com uh, commissioned by the UN Secretary General and also funded by the UNDP, uh, titled Our Common uh, Neighborhood. When he was saying that, as at the time uh, we conceived the creation of the UN, that nation states were mostly imperial powers and they had the say then. But as it stands now, we have burgeoning actors uh, in international law, of which these transnational corporations and the world which they hold dwarf the economy of uh, most states. 
For example, if you want to place the economy of uh, ExxonMobil side by side with the likes of Chile or Pakistan, you see that these companies are wealthier than these states. Also, I think that was the case of the OT OKTD uh, copper and gold mine, wherein uh, the WOW Ecological Institute had supported these inhabitants of uh, the OKTD uh, community to bring an action against them before the, I think that was the second international water tribunal in the Hague. In the Hague. The tribunal said that the company was guilty of violation because it has used its foreign earning powers, in parentheses, to influence the government to lower environmental standards. Just like the case Nemo was talking about, there's also the second case of the Umunechem uh, massacre, <laughs> wherein uh, the director of Shell had to call the infamous mobile police, and then they came out very brutal on persons who were uh, protesting peacefully. Things like the uh, voluntary principle too were uh, offshoot of what happened with uh, BP and uh, Colombia to for hiring uh, forces, uh, which were complicit in human rights abuses. So we are seeing the burgeoning rule of transnational corporations and uh, domestic accountability for these corporations, even in most uh, developed economy, cannot really cut it. I'll give an instance like the uh, Apple and Ireland task case. We saw the, the EC, the European Commission, saying uh, Apple was actually uh, owing about 11 billion in tax, uh, in tax to Ireland. And Ireland was saying, no, we're not going to accept it. Instead, they were going to back Apple to appeal against the decision. And in the debates before the, uh, the uh, Irish uh, Parliament, while the, uh, PM, was, the uh, PM was saying we will not allow the uh, decision against Apple to stand, the majority, the uh, opposition leader said, yes, we needed a companies like Apple in Ireland, but we cannot close our eyes to tax evasion and tax avoidance. And the reason is not far-fetched. Since 1980, foreign direct investment has been an economic strategy for Apple, for uh, Ireland. So you can actually see that there is this uh, uh, nation, the nation state in itself is being very careful to preserve those ties between the transnational corporations and themselves, because the transnational corporations are getting even much powerful in aspects like international economic law, where you see transnational uh, corporations sitting at pair with uh, states and <coughs> taking them to OPEC offshore tribunals. You know, and some of these uh, decisions are decisions which would not survive any standing democracy. You know, in fact, they take these nation states to tribunal for the outcome of a democratic process in parliament. And you keep wondering, where exactly does power lie in the contemporary dispensation? We're actually seeing, if I would make a biblical allusion to the concept of our Ichabod, that the glory has departed. We're having the Congress standing, we're having the legislative house standing, but the powers don't really lie there, because in truth, the power is in the hands of international financial capital. And that is just the cross which the nation state has been nailed to now. Okay. So, uh, thank you. My that's, a, that's a great point to end yeah, on. My it question, is. and uh, to Daniel, uh, precisely, all these uh, solutions which you've itemized, is it not the fact that the solution could actually be in perhaps uh, a norm of accountability with a hard law obligation in itself? Yes, we can be optimistic about the soft law obligations because we know that uh, it's more or less a spectrum of binding precedent, which, which has a great deal of gradation in between. But is it not the fact that litigation and extraterritorial litigation in most of these countries don't have a future, especially what is coming from the Supreme Court of the US and the problem with technicalities you okay. face in most of these countries? Thank you. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Do, do you want to uh, quickly comment, both of you? Well, um, th I mean, that was a, a, a small PhD. That was a, that <laughs> was a, a, a very impressive uh, tour de force of uh, international law, corporate law, and, and, and the Bible as well. So I was <laughs> very impressed. Uh, I, think, I think you're absolutely right in, in defining the issue, which is we have... A, a mismatch of power, a disconnect um, between transnational corporations and nation states that are meant to regulate them. And that is the heart of the problem, that many of, many of these countries which are being essentially, uh, which host these nation states, simply do not have the resources uh, or the capacity to regulate them properly. And Nigeria is one of the most glaring examples of that. I mean, the Nozdra, which is the oil regulator, it, do, it doesn't even have the money to go to the sites where there are the oil spills. And we are seeing regulation tighten up. So the Bribery Act now in the United Kingdom is extremely onerous. If Royal Dutch Shell or any other company is, and their subsidiaries are bribing, there is a, they could be criminally liable in London for what they're doing. But we, we have not got to the stage where you can be liable for environmental devastation <laughs> that's been caused by your subsidiary. There's no reason for that. All we need to do is change the legal framework, and that will change. And if at the moment we change the legal framework, you will see behavior will completely transform. If they know in London they could be held to account for what happens in Port Harcourt, believe me, it would be a you would see gas flaring change very quickly. You'd see oil spills being cleaned up. Problem is, we have complete impunity at the moment. So that's the challenge. That's the challenge we have to you know work on. Thank you, Daniel. So, yeah. So this this clearly this struggle, this legal struggle, is how to carry out both offshore and onshore. Yeah. We're everywhere, so and I, I agree. I mean, you painted a picture that makes it seem like we're not going to find a solution to this problem. I said we have a revolution, <laughs> and I, I, I do fully agree with your analysis and your response. Um, yes, if I should comment on the issue of the regulatory agencies and and holding corporations to account for every oil spill that has occurred over the past. 58 years, the companies can actually show you a paper, a certificate, that they've cleaned the spills. Because somebody endorsed a paper that they cleaned the spills. The, the reality, even the casual physical, physical examination will show that nothing has been done. So there's corruption in the, in, the, in the whole system. And then the lack of equipment for an agency like the Oil Spill Detection and Response Agency happened to depend on the corporation is a very big problem, and we also campaigning that government should fund them adequately so that they can do independent work. Uh, I remember the case of the corporations are quite smart too, have very good PR system, and are very good at setting the, the volume of spills that occurred. Mm. In 2011, December 2011, when Shell pumped crude oil into the Atlantic Ocean instead of into an oil exporting vessel, uh, they, they ended up announcing that, look, that was the Bonga oil spill. They said where there was, uh, we only spilled 40,000 barrels of crude oil. I mean, you could spill 40,000 without realizing you're not pumping into a vessel. I mean, that was, that was mm. a, a scandal on its own. But then the go government penalized Shell 
Other share to pay $50 billion for, for that pollution. I mean, share and share just whipped it off. I said, you're talking nonsense. You have no power to find us. We, did, we don't, they just disregarded it out, out yeah. of hand. Yeah. And then a month later, there was an, a gas rig explosion offshore by Chevron. And the same agency said, well, you got to pay $2 billion US dollars for this devastation because a lot of communities were impacted. And Chevron just said, well, we're not going to pay nothing. You have no right to penalize us. Right. So it's a, it's a really complex situation, uh, which I believe that if the UN system comes to become, we have a binding uh, set of guidelines that could be useful. Because right now, in the face of all this impunity, the voluntary guide principles of the oil companies, which Shell has signed, Chevron has signed, Exxon has signed, these are in, a, in place, and they don't, they don't ever follow any of those principles. They don't report on human rights infringement. They don't report on incidents that, that occur in the communities. And of course, the other issue has been the uh, transparency, the move for transparency. The Obama bringing a, this law, additional law, that company, companies should, pay, should announce what all the payments they make to foreign governments. And I think the, man, the, power, the powerful man now in the White House is, trying to, is rolling that back that companies don't need to reveal what they're paying the government. Right. So you make companies to do, choose which law to obey and which law to break. Thank you very much. We have time for more questions. How many more questions do we have? Let me count them. Okay, can we start with the gentleman? And then, and the gentleman behind. Please, shorter questions. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not uh, going to uh, ask a long question. My name is Martin Furvik. I just um, wonder if there are any Norwegian oil companies involved in the pollution in Nigeria, either as operator or as a part owner in an oil field. Thanks Thank very much. Nemo. Are there any Norwegian companies involved? Yeah. Yeah. What do you know <laughs> about that? Just okay. say something. Okay. Well, we have start oil in Nigeria. That's it. And of course, in Nigeria, Norway is always, all over Africa, Norway is held as the best example of a country that has done very well with crude oil. And start oil is the best corporation in the whole world in terms of fossil fuel extraction. But start oil is operating in Nigeria, mostly offshore, so communities don't get to see what, if there's anything going wrong there. But then onshore, they're operating also in partnership but not the major operators onshore, but they're in partnership. So whenever any of these companies uh, cause infringement of human rights or pollution, of course, Start Oil is behind it, and they cannot escape uh, being a part of the mess. So Start Oil, yes. Thank you. We have one more question, the gentleman. Oh, I'm Siddharth Sareen. I have a question that's uh, primarily directed at financial uh, um, aspects. So from a legal perspective, it's quite expensive taking cases, especially for these communities, to the kind of forums you've talked about in Oslo, London, Paris, etc. Um, one model is probably perhaps what you've been doing, a pro bono basis uh, operation, but are there thoughts on different ways this could be funded to have it happen more often? Um, I, I guess Nima already brought up one other point I had about how where, because, where I think there was a bit of slippage in what you said in your response prior to this question, where we're seeing 
politically rolling back of the kind of accountability and transparency that we need um, to ensure that oil companies cannot influence politics in a number of countries and thereby get the kind of uh, legal framework they want. You said, if we could just change some legal aspects, it would be much easier, but this is not an accident that they're set up the way they are. Is there some kind of traction that can be generated for politics to be different, or do you think it can actually be done just via a legal route without changing the political systems that I would say very much interface with the way that, uh, that legal frameworks are currently set up? To Nemo, um, I have a question about a positive transformational possibility. Um, Aramco, I think the, the Saudi Arabian oil major is now divesting 5% of its stake, uh, so it'll become the largest with an initial public offering, the largest company partly publicly owned. That's something that's going to happen probably in a very short time span. Um, these companies have been very well entrenched in the energy sector in one way, but do we see some possibility for them to have a lot more flexibility and move towards renewables and capture that market in ways that might or might not be good? But is that something that you see a role for activism in to work towards that might be better than the current set of situations in contexts like Nigeria or indeed elsewhere. In India, I'm thinking that there's the public, the main coal India, the largest public sector um, coal, not oil utility in this case, is divesting a 10% share. So it's not an individual instance, but something we could see coming up in a big way in, in the next few years. Thank you. Daniel, why don't you respond? Short. Um, yeah, yes, I, I'm not just saying these, these changes would happen uh, legally. I, I think they would require political change. I think yeah. the, the bribery legislation that we've seen, even the so. United Nations general principles that have emerged have been part of a political process. Yeah. So lawyers like myself and, and, and others around the world are we're working at the coalface trying to get remedy with the tools we already have. But I think the legal framework does need to be changed which does create a due diligence requirement on parent companies to ensure their subsidiaries are operating lawfully around the world. Um, and that's something we need to be working towards. I think we're seeing various initiatives. There's, a case, there's some legislation going through the French parliament at the moment, uh, the Swiss parliament. Um, there's, there are um, ideas, I'll, I think, uh, Kind of bubbling in the in the German political arena, um, I, so I think I think we're going to be making progress towards that in in the next ten to fifteen years. I mean, I think we all need to think what comes after Trump, because I don't think anything is going to happen much <laughs> for the next four and perhaps even eight years. God, God forbid. But um, but after you know, this is a long term issue, uh, and I think. The policymakers, the human rights activists, the environmental, environmental activists, the lawyers, we all need to be sitting down in rooms coming up with very concrete legislative proposals that would have the power to transform the, this, this work. Because at the moment, it is, you are absolutely right. It's very difficult to bring these cases. It's primarily very difficult to bring these cases because corporations hide behind their corporate structure, as you were alluding to, sir. Uh, and if there was a due diligence requirement, that would, be, that would be much harder for corporations to hide behind their corporate structure. There would be a presumption that they had to take action to make sure their subsidiaries were behaving themselves, and they would have the, the burden of demonstrating that to the court. That could really make an enormous difference to these issues around the world. 
So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that's where we're going to get to. It's going to, it's going to take, there's going to be a long walk to, to get there. But um, I think that's where we're heading. Thank you. Nemo. Yes. Um, Very short comment and then we'll take yeah, the last sure. question. I, I would really like to see more litigation, so more cases coming up, because this is <coughs> kind of encourage the oil companies to change their behavior or move to other areas. And yes, uh, I, I think moving to renewables would be a very, I mean, that's, that's that'd be the wise recommendation for the corporation. They have the infrastructure already. Uh, they could use the offshore platforms as wind farms or solar farms uh, instead of continuing to drill for crude. Uh, more of us, crude oil is uh, running out. They have to, they, they're forced to go into extreme extraction like fracking or go into deeper waters, which is more yeah. dangerous. So I think that there are enough reasons for them to begin to change their outlook. Right. So we have two more questions in the audience, and I'm going to take them on a row. Please, sir, and then the gentleman on the other side. Okay, my name is Emenike uh, Eribe. I'm uh, from the southeast, Nigeria. So what is taking place in the Delta State also happens to be part of me, even though I'm a little bit far away from Port Harcourt, but it's, it's still our problem. My question is, um, in terms of medical help, is there any medical help to the people living in, within the environment? Is there any follow-up in terms of projects as what has happened, what is happening, and what is going to happen? Is there any medical intervention in any, in any form in the Niger Delta? And uh, to, uh, to you, the, uh, the lawyer, uh, the question <laughs> Daniel. was, Daniel, Daniel. <laughs> there was a question true to you in terms of uh, how do the community contact your people and uh, who foots the bill? He asked, is it pro bono or just, how, how does it, how, do you, how does it happen? Yeah. So these are the two okay. short questions I have. Hold on to those responses. We're going to take the, why don't you, the, the lady here. Very short questions and then it goes to you. So I'm Ellen Hansen and I used to work for the Norwegian Council of Africa many years ago in the 90s for the first Nigeria campaign and I've been lucky to be uh, assigned for, for a short time and in the uh, volunteer core of people working on Nigeria. And uh, I'm concerned about how Norway and how small um, civil society organizations can somehow um, be a part in the development of these things. And for Norway, Statoil, like you say, will brush their hands because they're offshore. But we have the, what we call the petroleum fund or the pension fund, which could be a potential um, party somehow. And they also are quite eager to in, get involved in um, renewable resources, and I believe Norway is getting into the solar power industry now. And so, please comment if there are ways that the a small organization like the, the Council of Africa could, could positively, positively uh, intervene somehow or be part of a process. They, you might have ideas for how, how to develop these kind of uh, political issues in Norway because we want to be a pressure point into to, uh, good processes. Thank you very much. If you pass the... There we go. And that's the last question. Uh, hello. Uh, my name is Jan-Petter Holtedal. Um, 
I, I, I thought I could not uh, be here and listen to you without commending you for the fantastic work you are doing. Uh, I've, I've had a chance through my work uh, for NORAD uh, meeting Nimo uh, down in the Delta. And as, as you, David, I've, I've been around there. I've been standing close to the spills and smelling it. And you want to run away after two minutes because it, you think it's going to eat your brain. Mm. It's horrible, really horrible. The work you do is massively important. Um, um, but beyond the value of the court cases itself, them, themselves and, and winning it, I think uh, the, the naming and shaving uh, part of it strengthens the shaming of the companies doing this. It's beyond the value of the money that they have to pay. Um, but also in terms of alliances. and. Uh, it seems we're thinking alike here. <laughs> you stole my point, but I still want to raise it because I, 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 I want to ask you to what extent are you trying to link up with uh, other entities, uh, organizations that try to influence these uh, very influential uh, investors. Um, in fact, the, the, pen, the Norwegian Pension Fund, which is a massive fund, has now decided to move out of uh, companies that invest more than I think it's 30% in coal uh, and they have an ethics committee and they do uh, follow it. So the question is basically are, are you in touch with uh, people from the fund? Are you touching with people who can influence the fund? Uh, if you're not, uh, that would be uh, a tip uh, because I think this battle it is global, it's local and it's global, but it also has to be won on several fronts, uh, both in terms of level, locally, regionally, globally, uh, and in, in terms of using different types and, and, and the you know, money talks and in investment or divestment could actually influence a lot on the ground, I think. So please feel free to <coughs> comment. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we are running out of time. I'm going to ask you Daniel, to just make some final comments and address quickly the answers, and then Nimo, the same to you. Um, a, a lot of very um, important questions. Um, in terms of how the cases come to us, we get contacted uh, often by people who are just have an, are in the village and send an email to us directly. Uh, they look up our website and they call us and. That's why, in fact, through Bodo, it was a, a local NGO who came to see me when I was in Nigeria. And that's how we get the vast majority of our cases. Obviously, we don't charge the communities or anyone anything. We get paid only if we win, and we get the shell or whoever is defending. They have to pay our legal costs. That's, that's how it works. It's... Um, it's how all cases work, civil cases work in, in London, unless in the UK, unless you've got a private fee arrangement. But obviously, with clients that we represent, <laughs> we don't, that's not going to happen. Um, in terms of what uh, Norwegian organizations could do, uh, and the pension fund, I mean, there is a report that's already been done by a professor, I think, for the Norwegian pension funds that was extremely detailed uh -huh. and very well thought through. <laughs> Um, and it's a point that we should maybe be in touch with them because we have a lot of on-the-ground information about what's going on. And we are representing these communities that are suffering on the ground and uh, we understand the issues at a very granular level. So that is a very good point. I mean, I think divestment from these companies that are just flouting local law is a very powerful tool when, it's, when it's, we're talking about large funds. 
um, that's a very good thing. But also writing to your lawmakers and your representatives and saying, please do something about this. I know the British Parliament is questioning Shell about its behavior in Nigeria. I think the Dutch Parliament's, these questions have been raised in, in the Netherlands. But the more that it happens, the more that really hits these multinationals where they, where it hurts. Um, and there was one other issue that I wanted to address, but I That's forgot okay. what it was. But let's <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> you. Oh, <laughs> do it after the. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. The question of health intervention. Um, you know, one of the shocking things about the United Nations Environment Program report on Ogoniland is that, as detailed as that report was, and the fact that they examined 5,000 medical files they could not reach a conclusion that there was a correlation between the po pollution in Ogoniland and the health. <laughs> yeah, they didn't. The report did not, which is very shocking. Mm -hmm. There's a big gap in that report. And we think that it was because they did not want to point fingers at the corporation the responsibility for, for the health of the people. And now, um, life expectancy is 41 years in the Niger Delta. Mm -hmm. And in Ogoniland, it's a festival. You must have seen the festival of funerals every weekend. And it's young people, 25 years, 30 years. And so there's clearly a link between the pollution and the health. If you get to Bordeaux, for example, you can't spend five minutes without having a headache. Your eyes will begin to, I mean, you, you could smell it, you feel it. It's all over the place. And there's no linkage, no, because, of, because one of the reasons they gave was that Many of the records just say, well, this person came down with a fever, and they don't know what kind of fever it was. Was it malaria? Was it this or that? So because of that, they could not point at anything. So that's a big problem. And then also, I think, as you asked that question, it came to my mind that we really need to investigate further about the healthcare provisions, because the companies, as part of their corporate social responsibility, are building clinics in the Niger Delta beside their pollution. And so I, to me, is a no-brainer to build a clinic beside without stopping the pollution will not solve any problems. Mm. And then with regard to collaboration, I think the divestment idea is excellent. We actually sent some communication with the, to the pension fund, and as you have rightly pointed out, they're not going to divest from oil, from, from Shell. But we demanded that they should divest from Shell. They, spent, they, they put a lot of money in Shell. And we asked them if they diverse, diverse from Shell, it would make an impact, send a strong message to what they're doing in, to them about what they're doing in Niger Delta. So I would like to encourage brothers and sisters here and organizations in Norway to talk to them. Since they will not listen to us, they will probably listen to you. Thank you very can much. I, this can is I just a, a add one, one thing about the health. What, the one thing, a lot of this makes me very angry, but the health effects of the people is one of the things that makes me the most angry. And we have written to Shell, I think, a hundred times saying, please, can you check the water in Bodo and can you check the health records? Can you have some screening program? And they've refused to do it. Yeah. They right. just haven't done it. And it's the same with these other communities. There is data that they are drinking from <coughs> poisoned wells, yeah. which are carcinogenic, uh, create all kinds of issues for the population. They simply won't do it. It's a scandal. It's a real scandal. Okay, so this is the end of our discussion, and uh, Maria is going to say the thank you. Yes, on behalf of the Rafto Foundation for Human Rights, uh, the Norwegian Council for Africa, and Human Rights Human Wrongs Documentary Festival, 
We would like to thank all of you for coming, for caring, for engaging in this issue. And most of all, we would like to thank our panelists and debate moderator, so Daniel Leader from Lide Law Firm, Asun St. Clair of the Rafta Foundation, and Nimo Bassi, of course, from Health of Mother Earth Organization. Thank you all of you for coming. Um, if you would like to get, engage more in this issue, volunteer, then the Norwegian Council for Africa is here today. Um, you can talk to them, raise your hand maybe if you are the one to be talked to. Yep, right there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys, so have a wonderful Sunday and thank you for coming out.